comfort mentioned here in verse 18 is what we want to talk about today. As we listen for that great day, when we will hear that trumpet call like none other that we've been reminded of this morning, it will be our time to go and to be with the Lord if we're still alive. And of course, if we're not, we'll be uh, we'll get a head start. So uh, that's what we're told here. And we rejoice in that. But a lot of people, I'm afraid, have difficulty finding comfort in the prospect of the coming Lord. Now, hopefully that's not the case with you. But across Christendom, I think it is the case with many. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, His coming back, is made very, very clear in the Scriptures. 2,163 references you can find in the Bible to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Nearly one verse out of every 30 verses in the New Testament refer to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. For every prophecy of His first coming as a babe in the manger, there are eight that refer to His second coming. We have every assurance in Scripture that He will come. He Himself said in John 14, 3, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Seventy-nine percent, according to the Pew Research Center, seventy-nine percent of Christians across the United States actually believe that Christ will indeed return to earth. And I think uh, we would have a hundred percent here this morning. Twenty percent, twenty percent of Christians in America believe that Jesus Christ will actually come back in their lifetime. I sure hope so. If you're not hoping so, you've got to disconnect somewhere. You know, uh, I don't like to face the fact, but every day I get a little bit older. And uh, it's tempting to think, gee whiz, my life is about over. Gee whiz, I've lived at least, you know, 70% of my lifespan. My life's about over. No, it's not about over. It's just about ready to begin one way or the other. The Lord doesn't come back. I go to be with Him first. Life, true life, eternal life, is just about to begin. The promise we have of this is our comfort. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 18 tells us. But then a lot of Christians, they look at passages such as Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 to 14, and they say, my goodness, there's a lot of very concerning things that take place in and about and uh, in conjunction with the coming of the Lord. False Christs are mentioned, wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, persecution, false prophets, and lawlessness. All of that Jesus mentions in reference to His second coming in the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Here's the problem and here's the disconnect for many people. Jesus Christ, 
I have a remote control somewhere. Anybody know where it went? <laughs> where? Thank you. No problem. <laughs> okay. Uh, here's the disconnect. The second coming of Jesus Christ is not one event. It is two. It is a preliminary event followed by the final coming. We just read about the preliminary event in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. When the Lord comes in the air, when there's a shout, the, the trumpet, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and those that are alive and remain that know the Lord are caught up together to be with Him in the clouds, and so to be with the Lord. So that is the removal of believing Christendom, believing Christians from the face of this earth, prior to the final judgments of God, it'll fall upon the earth. And that's what Matthew 24, verses 4 to 14 are speaking about. The judgments that fall upon the earth after the church has been removed. The Lord does not come all the way to the earth. He does not establish His kingdom. He just comes for us and He removes us for a short time called the Tribulation period, the uh, the time in which God brings about His judgment upon this earth. At the end of that time, when the Antichrist gathers his forces together in the battle of uh, in what's called the Battle of Armageddon in the Valley of Megiddo, the Lord will return once again to complete the final two-part, two-phase coming. He will defeat all of the armies of earth that oppose Him and that serve the Antichrist with His spoken word. And then he will establish his kingdom on this earth for a thousand years and he will rule as he promised he would. By the way, he told us to pray for that when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. He said to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when we pray thy will be done, we're praying for that kingdom to come. Because it is only within that kingdom that His will is going to be perfectly done on this earth. Now we as His children do our best to live according to His will and do His will, but there are many, many millions who do not in this day and age. So you have to understand that or you've got a problem. You, you don't have any hope. You don't have any real comfort looking forward to the second coming because you get all these terrible things that he lists there in Matthew 24 and other places that you've got to get through. But if you know you're going to be spared from all that, then you're ready for the Lord to come. Your life is not about over. It's just about ready to begin if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. So, now let's go to where we're at here in our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning. We will begin at verse 1 and we'll move on down through about verse, uh, well, the first part of verse 4. And what we are considering here then is this. Is the second coming a comfort or a concern to you? That's the title of the message. The point of the message is this. The second coming should be a comfort. It should be a comfort and not a concern. If it is a concern, you're either mistaken about the process or the prophecy of the second coming, or you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ at all. Then that would be a concern. So let's look at 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And just to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of context here, remember that Paul has been to Thessalonica. He's established the church. He has left. He wrote the church and he sent them the letter of 1 Thessalonians in which he revealed again and emphasized and thank the Lord he did or we would have no clear prophecy on the, on the, the rapture of the church. And uh, that's what we read as we began here this morning. But then he left again. Well, he didn't leave again. He just, he was still away for a while and he had to write back again because they got confused and concerned for this reason. The, the Romans had begun to persecute the church. And they were suffering much at the hand of the Roman authorities. And some, no doubt, probably had even lost their lives, been martyred as a result. And they associated this terrible time they were going through with these end-time events, such as are mentioned in Matthew 24. And they said, whoa, we were supposed to be out of here, but we're not. And things are really getting bad. Uh, maybe we did something wrong. Maybe we didn't understand. Maybe we didn't believe. Maybe we weren't sincere. They, they were, they were very confused. They were very disheartened and discouraged. And, uh, that's why, at least one of the reasons why he wrote Second Thessalonians to give them again assurance of the comfort of the coming Lord and to assure them that was still on the horizon. Thing had changed. He hadn't missed anything. So that's where we at, where we are at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in verse 1 where it reads, Now brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. It had not come. They were worried it had. But it had not. And he says, listen, don't worry about that. You're okay. And really, life in this world, whether you're a Christian or not, is full of trouble and problems. There's blessings too, but we're not immune from the problems and the concerns of life and the difficulties of life and even some very tough things. So don't be shaken by those things. So here's what I want to talk to you about. Okay, the second coming of Jesus Christ should be a comfort and not a concern. But we live right here, right now, in this moment. And we cannot help but be concerned about a lot of things. That's just human. We're concerned about our health in this time of uh, the coronavirus. You are concerned about your children growing up in this world that seems to be deteriorating morally all the time. We were worried about our safety and security in this world. Yeah, there'll be wars and rumors of wars in that day, but to an extent we have the same today. We are concerned about our safety. So you say, Pastor, it's one thing to say, you know, we should be comforted the Lord is coming, but I'm struggling with what, what, how do I handle that today? Well, Paul gives us the answer here, and here's what I want you to note. There are two 
things that Paul teaches here in verses 1 through the first part of verse 4. And what he says is that there are two, he doesn't say it in outline form like I'm going to give it to you, but here's what he is saying to the Thessalonian church. He's saying there are two sustaining practices that should be a part of your life that will give you real hope and bring you to a point of real comfort about the coming of the Lord. Two sustaining practices. So here's the thing. Just because God says something is going to happen, that's a level of comfort and and a level of uh, assurance. But there's something we need to do on a daily basis that brings our heart and mind back to that as a constant anchor day to day. So here it is. Number one, don't worry. Okay, you say, Pastor, you just told me you were going to tell me how to do something. Now, you got to be kidding me. Don't worry. Anybody here conquered the worry habit? You raise your hand. We're going to give you a standing ovation. Anybody here can say, I do not worry. Okay, I've got a captive audience this morning. You all need to hear this, right? <laughs> we all worry. We're all concerned about this and that. Well, we're going to talk about that more practically in a moment. But notice at verse 1, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. So here's his topic. He says, number one, He's coming. And number one, He's coming to get us. Concerning the coming of our Lord. The word translated coming in the Greek language is the Greek word which means to come and be present. He's not just coming back, but He's coming back for us. We are going to be in His presence. He is coming to take us with Him back to heaven. He's went and prepared a place for us, and He's going to come again and receive us unto Himself, that where He is there we will be also, as He said in John 14. So, his coming is all about being with him, being in the presence of Jesus Christ. And he continues and he gives a second explanation. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. You realize that's a gathering together of all of us here that know the Lord if we're alive when that day comes. But it's also a gathering together of those that we have loved that knew the Lord that have passed on because the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we'll be caught up together to be with them in the air, as we read earlier, 1 Thessalonians 4. So it's a, it's going into His presence, it's being removed from this world into the presence of God Almighty and gathered together with all other believers and loved ones of days past at the same time gathered into the presence and the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as a result of that that he has said in verse 1, as a result of those two, that twofold explanation of his coming, he says this in verse 2, Do not be soon shaken. Now to be shaken, it's just, it just means to be unsettled. It's, it's kind of like you're, you know, you're on a rowboat, uh, you know, and, uh, the storm comes along. You know, you're, you're kind of shaken about. You're, you're, you're unsettled. You don't know if you're, you're going to, uh, make it back to shore. Uh, you're concerned. 
Uh, he, he says, you shouldn't be like this in your mind. He says, not be soon shaken in mind. Now, we all get shaken in mind from time to time. And when we get shaken in mind, concerned, overly worried, we need to know what to think about, what to focus on, and how to deal with it. But he has given us the command, don't worry here. Don't be soon shaken in mind or troubled, or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter. Now he's talking about them in that context. Don't be shook up or, or, or concerned because somebody in a letter or somebody came to you or somebody gave you a, a different teaching of some sort and said, now you're going to have to endure all the, the trouble of the tribulation period from beginning to end. No. But he's saying in general to us that this knowledge that we are going to go into his presence, we're going to be gathered together, should give us this peace of mind. Peace of mind. We live in a world that lacks peace of mind. One uh, organization, the Kantar Health uh, Research Group, as it's quoted in uh, an article on TMC Net News, recently said this. They said that today <clears throat> the symptoms of anxiety have doubled in the United States since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. The people that are suffering from anxiety, their symptoms have doubled. I, I'm, that's, that's just talking about people that have a, a problem with anxiety, or did have before. How many can be added to that list? How many of of us would say, well, I certainly have been troubled. And yet Jesus says, twenty-one, at least 21 times, according to Max Licato's book, Fearless, at least 21 times in the gospel accounts that we should not be afraid and we should fear not. Yet we worry, we're concerned, we're overly plagued by fear. You know, worry is really concern, legitimate concern, that is blown out of proportion. Jesus said, let, let today's own trouble be sufficient for today. He knows we live in a difficult world, a difficult situation. We're, we're going to be concerned about things. But he said, let today's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Yet we take legitimate concern for today and we telescope it into tomorrow, next week, and next year, and ten years from now, and we blow out, out of proportion in magnitude in our minds. Someone has estimated that 40% of the things that we normally worry about will never happen. That removes 40% of your worries right there, right? 30% of things that we worry about are already said and done, and in the past we can't change them. That's 70% gone. Another 12% of our worries are, uh, according to this estimate, about criticisms that others make about us and, and conclude about us that we can't control and usually uh, don't matter. 
And then he said, finally, there's a 10% worry about their health. Uh, and that only is made worse by worrying about it. So, <laughs> you know, our worry is just an over-magnification of legitimate concerns. And Jesus made this clear in Matthew chapter 6. And I would suggest we're going to have some wording on screen from Matthew 6. But you may want to change, you may want to turn to Matthew 6 and look at it yourself. Uh, because it's not all going to be online. Online, on screen, excuse me. Matthew 6 is a classic teaching of Jesus on this matter of worry. He begins in verse 25 and says, Therefore I say unto you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them, and you not are you not of more value than they? Which of you worrying can add a, literally it says a cubit to his stature, but it's literally uh, can add a, an hour to your life is the meaning there. So why, verse 28, do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the valley, how they grow, uh, and they neither uh, toil nor spin. Verse 29, and I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, uh, we will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Now here we are at verse 31, and this is a crucial part. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Now, if you have nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and nothing to wear at the present moment, then I think that's a legitimate concern. He's going to get to that in a moment. But worrying about what he's going to do next week, next year, or the next 10 years of your life, for some of us uh, at this stage in our life, you know, it's it's more right. I don't know. How am I going to make it in retirement? You know, am I going to have enough? Uh, don't worry about these things. Don't telescope it out. Don't magnify it. Now he says in verse 32, For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you would have need of all these things. But, this is verse 33, but seek first the kingdom, and this is the crucial point here, but seek first the kingdom of God as his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. God, Let God take care of the things he's promised to take care of. And quit taking the things that God has promised to take care of and over-magnifying them in your mind and worrying about them. Now, you go back to that verse, please. Uh, I want you to look at this again from a different perspective here. Let's, let's consider what it is that you and I really are concerned about when we worry. It's not what's going to be on my plate or what kind of clothes I'm going to have on my back. But it's, am I going to be able to survive? Or, or am I going to be able to survive at the level that I would like to live? <laughs> we are on the physical plane in our minds. And Jesus says our minds need to be fixed on the spiritual. Seek the kingdom now, now we can go on to the next slide. So he says, don't worry. Now, now here's, what, here's the point I want to make, and I want to do it in pictures so you'll 
Remember it. Our concern mostly is about safety. Safety, security, what we eat, what we drink, what we wear, what kind of shelter we're going to have, what kind of car we're going to drive, are we going to have enough money in the bank, are we going to be able to live in retirement, whatever. It's safety and security that we're focused on. And we worry about that. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not safety and security that you need to be worried about. Let me worry about your safety and security. He says, I want to trade something off. I want to take the safety and security and turn it into certainty of the future. Here's what we ought to be focused on. The certainty that we have going forward. And that certainty is a spiritual reality when you understand that God loved you enough to die on, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And he offers you perfectly a sound mind, a sound mind and a, and a secure mind uh, because of the certainty of where we are going. We're going to be with him. We're going to be in his presence. We're going to be gathered together with him and others like us. That's the eternal, ultimate, spiritual certainty that he wants us to focus on in our minds. So the next time you're worried about safety in this world, understand, this world is only transitory. You're only here for a short time. And in the consideration or the understanding that life goes on eternally, this little bit of time we spend on this earth is totally insignificant and our comfort and our safety and our security is really in, insignificant it is our certainty of life forever with the Lord Jesus Christ where there'll be no pain and no crying and no death and no, con- no concerns of any kind that certainty should be what occupies our mind which helps us to put the more trivial concerns out of our mind. Now we see the same thing in the book of Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. That's another way of saying, don't worry. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You want to have peace of mind? Verse 7 gives you the result of doing that. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, go back to verse 6. Don't worry. Instead of focusing on all the things that have to do with safety and security, and getting overly concerned and magnifying it and telescoping it, pray. What do you do when you pray? When you pray, you go to God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and you say, Lord, would you take care of my safety and security? The Lord says, sure, I'll take care of that. Now, what did you just do when you did that? You have refocused your mind from life here on this earth and all the potential problems and difficulties and suffering that you could go through, and you've just put it all on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and you've refocused your mind on the certainty that he can handle that and that beyond that, wow, you don't have, you're never even going to have to worry about it again. So prayer is one of the, the major, I would put it right at the top, the number one way to deal with worry that gets out of control, get on your knees and begin to pray and begin to, to realize that God's got your problems in hand and He's got your situation under control and He's got your eternal life already planned out. And the peace of God, verse 7, will then flood into your heart and soul as a result of that. So, number one, don't worry. You've got to put some effort into that. You've got to do some things to keep your mind where it should be. But it's all based on the fact that He's coming for us. We're going to be with Him. We're going to live with Him forever in a perfect situation. That brings us then to number two. We said there were two practices. Two practices that will sustain us in the midst of concern. Number one, don't worry. Well, you just, you just say, you just can't say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to stop worrying. No, no, you got to go to prayer. You got to refocus your mind on scripture. And by the way, if you never read the scripture, you're never going to have God's perspective on anything, are you? If you don't read the scripture, you're not going to realize there's comfort in the scriptures. If you don't read the scriptures, you're not going to know what Jesus said about worry. You're not going to know what he said about the second coming. You're going to be confused about everything and you're not going to have any peace of mind. So don't worry, number one. Number two, be watchful. Now, I'm going to give you another word here besides watchful. It's not on screen. It's another W. Be wary. W-A-R-Y. To be wary means to be watchful. To be watchful means to be wary. But when we use the word watchful, we, we think in terms of, well, just watching for the Lord to come. I'm talking, I'm not talking about that kind of watching here. I'm talking about watching what's going on in the world. Because that'll tell you that we're progressing toward the Lord's coming. See, if we're watching what's going on in the world and we're worrying about all the threats and all the problems and all the difficulties that might fall on us, we're not really getting comfort. But when we understand that what we're seeing in the world is pointing toward His coming, then we begin to have comfort. So be wary in the sense of not necessarily just, you know, looking up, but, but looking around and say, hey, wow, isn't this what the Bible talks about? We're getting closer. So be wary, be watchful, whatever you want to, to call it. But what should we watch for? What should, be we, should we be wary of? Number one is apostasy. Watch for apostasy on the rise. And then secondly, watch for anti-Christian sentiment in society. Now, let's look at the scripture. Verse 2, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, he says. And then in verse 3, he says, let no one deceive you by any means that the day will not come unless... Let me go back and read this right. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day 
will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Now, here's what he's saying to the church in Thessalonica. He's saying, until you see these things happen, the day of the Lord has not come. Now, the day of the Lord, I'll probably put a chart on screen next week to make it clearer, but if you can remember back a few weeks ago, back before we preached the seven-part series on Psalms and we preached through 1 Thessalonians, we, we explained the day of the Lord as being that portion of the tribulation period that God's judgment falls on earth, stretching all the way through the rest of the tribulation period, the judgments that come at the end of the tribulation period, all the way through the millennium and all the way down to the great white throne judgment. The day of the Lord, as it is talked about in the Old Testament, and it frequently is in the prophecies of the Old Old Testament prophets, always has to do with God's judgment on unbelieving people and on the unbelieving world. So, the, the fear the Thessalonians had was that they had entered into this day of the Lord in which they were going to reap the, the, uh, the judgment themselves. And, and Paul was saying, no, that's not the case. In fact, that day cannot come until two things happen. That's what he's saying in verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless... <clears throat> the falling away comes first. And, and the man of sin <clears throat> is revealed. Two things. The apostasy comes first, the falling away. By the way, the word apostasy, as I'm using it on screen, is a word which means to fall away from the truth that God teaches to accept what God says, but then after a while say, I don't think I'll believe that anymore. I'm going to follow what somebody else says. To depart from the truth. That's apostasy. So two things have to happen before the day of the Lord. God's judgment falls on the earth and other judgments will follow. Number one, there's an apostasy that will occur. Number two, the man of sin will be revealed. Now, here's the connection to today. All right? As we look around, do we see wholesale apostasy? No. They, the Thessalonians didn't, and we don't see it. Now, <coughs> if, there come a, if there comes a day when the churches are empty, the Christians are raptured. The people that are left that were Christians, nominally speaking, they, they said they were Christians, they, they went to church, they never really accepted Christ as their personal Savior, they're going to fall away real, really fast when the Antichrist starts turning the screws of persecution up on anybody that does profess Christ. 
And it's going to be like rats jumping out of a sinking ship. If any, anyone that's not truly saved, left in the church, looks around, and there's only a few of them, and they know that all they see is, well, they're not going to go back. It's going to be a departure. A departure from churches, a departure from Christendom worldwide. Now, you can read about the results of this in Revelation 17, 1-6. And we've already covered this on Wednesday night recently. <clears throat> here's, here's a good example. Chris Cuomo, I think he works for CNN, in a recent interview was talking about the uh, Ms. Barrett, the Supreme Court nomination. And, and, and Ms. Barrett, uh, Amy, is, uh, is a Catholic, and she's pro-life. Of course, that, that doesn't suit Chris Cuomo. And he, he literally said this uh, in this interview. He says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what a person's faith is. What matters, he said, is their, is this, is their policy, policy positions affected by their faith. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he went on to explain further. He said, it doesn't matter if you have faith. It matters what your position, about, about your positions. And then he said this. He said, I'm a Christian. Well, he says he's a Christian, but he says he's pro-choice, not pro-life. That doesn't really jive with the Bible, does it? And he goes on to say this about the religious organization. Ms. Barrett uh, reportedly was involved with a group called People of Praise. He said, he said, you know, that's a devout organization. I said, they're not just about going to church on Sunday or even every Sunday. It's more than just a moral backdrop, he said, in Barrett's life. And he went on to say this. He said, this is a fundamentalist approach to her faith. In other words, she really believes it. And what he's saying is, you know, you can be a good Catholic, you don't have to believe anything. What he's saying is, you know, you, you can be religious, but just don't let it affect your morality. You can be religious, but don't let it affect what you, how you live your life. You see, that's the perspective, and I'm not trying to just pick on someone. I, I just tried to find an example in the news that shows that, that people think you can be religious and still do what you want, think what you want, believe what you want, live like you want. That's apostasy of an, the apostasy of an individual Catholic there. A, a Catholic in name who doesn't believe what the Catholic Church teaches. And, and I'm, I'm not here to tout the Catholics. I disagree with them on many, many things, including the doctrine of salvation. But uh, it's an example of apostasy from a known church that's usually lumped in with Christendom. And this is what, this is the thinking that affects every church and every group of Christians. Is that God's just okay if I just do some religious things. No, God's not okay if you just do some religious things. God is only okay 
if you belong to Him. He purchased you with His blood. It's not a, I, 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 I believe this, this, and this, you know. I'm okay now. No. Are you the recipient of the grace of God that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ that can only come to those who accept the person of Jesus Christ into their heart and life as their Savior and the Lord of their life? He's not going to become the Lord of your life immediately, but you've got to understand that's the place he has to have. That's the place he wants to be. And that's where you want him to be. It's, it's a complete change of perspective. Now it's not about what I want to do at all. It's what does Jesus want me to do. It's not about what makes me happy. It's what does Jesus tell me to do. And only in that is there real happiness. So, you can see evidence that the world is moving, moving, moving toward wholesale apostasy that runs across denominations in this world. And when we see that, we can get discouraged and we can get down about it and we can, you know, we don't want to see that. But the truth of the matter is when we see that, we know we're getting closer to the day that's promised us. There will be a falling away that comes first. Then, he says, the man of sin will have to be revealed. Now here he's talking about the Antichrist, as he is called in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. He will not be revealed. That is, revealed as to who he is, probably until right about the midpoint of the tribulation period. He'll be on the scene. He'll be a world leader. But not until he becomes the world dictator, the Antichrist, the person who is opposed to everything that God stands for, will it finally be evident which individual really is the Antichrist. He says, until that happens, you're not there yet. Now, look at it in verse 3. He's called the man of sin, which means that he is absolutely the embodiment of sin. He is absolutely dominated by sin. He lives in life of sin in totality. So he's called the man of sin. He's also called the son of perdition. The word perdition means destruction. He's ultimately uh, going to be judged. Ultimately, he faces a certain doom, obviously. And... Then he's called one who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. He's God's opponent. He's God's enemy. He's all these things, and it's made very clear in the book of Revelation. Now, I want to turn your attention to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Should we have it on? Yeah, we have it on screen. 1 John 2, 18. It says, little children, it is the last hour. Now, what does he mean by that? Ever since Jesus came the first time, the world's been in the last hour. Now, it's been 2,000 years, but it's, you know, we're in the last days. Because He's come, He's died on the cross, He's he's resurrected from the dead, He ascended back to the Father. We're only waiting the return. So we're in the last hour. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, says John, Many Antichrists have come. 
by which we know that it is the last hour. How do we know we're in the last hour? Because there's a lot of little Antichrist dotting history leading up to the big Antichrist at the end. Now what do I mean by that? I mean there's a lot of people in this world who exhibit the same characteristics that the Antichrist will ultimately uh, fully exhibit. There's a lot of people in this world that are opposed to God. A lot of people in this world that are sons and daughters of perdition, they're, they're, they're going to be doomed because they're utterly against God and all that God stands for. There's a country singer by the name of uh, Tom Rich, recently recorded a hit song called Earth to God. Some of you probably heard that. I, I have not, but uh, he was interviewed by Tommy Laren on her show No Interruption just in the last few days. And here's what he said. He asks a question, then he answers it. He says, why is there such a push to get God out of the conversation? He goes on to answer, the people that want him gone are the ones that want to be God themselves. And as long as God is still in the mix, the people, then people like us, and people like us recognize him as the ultimate authority, they can never be the ultimate authority over us. That is the spirit of Antichrist he just described. Now the Antichrist will rule and reign in his day for a short period of time. Now, when we see the spirit of Antichrist, anti-Christian sentiment, when we see apostasy starting to ramp up, that is comforting information because we know Jesus might come. And every day we should be looking for his coming and focused on the promise. And that will help us deal with our world and our situation and bring comfort into our lives. Now, here's, here's one final question. One final statement, I should say. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you do have something to fear. If you already know the Lord, we don't have anything to fear about eternity. But if you don't know the Lord, you have the same eternal destruction, judgment, awaiting that the Antichrist is going to have. Now, but God does not want to see anybody have to go to that, to that place of punishment. Jesus died on the cross. He made it possible for those who will come to Him, believe in Him, and invite Him into their life, and make Him their, their God and their Lord through faith. He will give them then, give them a free gift, eternal life. That's a pretty good deal. You don't have to be religious for 20 years. You don't have to get baptized 50 times. You don't have to join 75 churches. You don't have to do anything except, except Jesus Christ. That's a personal matter for you to handle your own life.